Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are continuing on our series through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And we've come to this place at the beginning of chapter 3 with the word, therefore. And I know a lot of you have heard this before, but whenever you see a therefore in the scriptures, it is there for a reason. And the reason this is here, sometimes, actually I should tell you, sometimes the therefore is to summarize and then to apply whatever's been said to our lives. Sometimes the therefore is, well, this is what we know thus far. This is what you've heard thus far. And then we build on it. Or we transition to something else. But the therefore is there for a reason. So it should cause us to be attentive. And what Paul has done thus far in his first letter to the Thessalonians, and you can always get the CDs and listen to them or go online, but you get some historic background as to Paul and his writing. And then he gets into reminding them as to when he was there and what happened while he was there and what he said to them, some of the basic things. And then when we get to this point, he's now beginning to inform them. He's telling them just a little more. So the therefore is there to tell them a little bit, first of all, about his situation and recognizing their situation. He says earlier, I was delayed. I couldn't come. I want to come. But I can't come. You know, I was persecuted there, and I was thrown out of there. And now I'm being hindered by Satan from returning. And so he kind of informs them as to his situation. And he knows they're going through persecution because he got word back from them about them. So he's talking about what the situation's with him and with them and in recognition as to what he said thus far, and he wants to encourage them. But he says this line that's very, very touching. He says, I could bear it no longer. Have you ever had that experience in your life where you could literally bear something no longer? We, can, we have situations in our lives physically where we can't bear it any longer. Emotionally, we can't bear it any longer. Most of us have had that kind of experience. Back New Year's Eve morning, I became quite sick. Notice I said New Year's Eve morning, not New Year's Eve, okay? I became quite sick. So much so that I ended up going to the hospital. And my wife said she knew I was sick when I consented to go. And when I arrived at the hospital, I was in so much pain, and they had to run tests on me and couldn't do anything until they ran the tests. And I was in pain literally for hours. They couldn't get a temperature initially. Eventually, they got my temperature. It was 94 degrees. I was septic. Apparently, it was something I ate or drank. And I remember laying there. I would never have said this to Meredith, thinking, this pain has to end, or I would love to die because I could bear it no longer. I'd never been in that kind of pain before, never want to be in that kind of pain again. 
But that's when you know that you can bear something no longer. I've shared a little bit about this, but when my mom was diagnosed as being terminal with cancer in March, I would go up there once a month for three or four days, and after I think it was my third trip, my mom said to, said to me, you know you don't have to keep coming up here. And I said, well, I'm not just coming here for you. I'm coming here for me. And part of the reason was because I couldn't bear not knowing how she was and seeing her face to face, so I wanted to go. And for those of you that have had children, when any of your child, your children or your child are distressed or in pain, and how you can't bear to see them in pain. It pains you. And you want to do something about it. And sometimes you just can't. I mean, it's something as minor in the big scheme of things as a croupy cough. You know, we're so thankful when we get past that, when the kids get a little older. But when they're in the midst of it, I remember getting up and rocking with whatever child it was, and holding the child, and walking around with the child, and walking outside because I hear that cool, damp air is good, and then going in the shower and turning the shower on because I hear that's good. And I'm trying everything to help this child because I can't bear it. That's what Paul's saying. Understand. We've already referred to the fact that he says something about being like a nursemaid, like a mother to them, and being like a father to them, that he loves them so much and he cares for them so much, he could not bear them going through the persecution because he's experienced it, he knows what it's like, and not being there to encourage them, and not knowing what's going on. That sometimes is even, even more difficult when we don't know what's going on. And so Paul says... That's why I'm sending Timothy. Timothy, my co-worker, they know that. Because Paul and his small group, the four of them, showed up together to bring the gospel to Thessalonica. Timothy, my brother. He's a brother in the Lord. They saw that kind of fellowship and caring. And later on in the scriptures... Paul would say, Timothy, my son. That's how much he loved Timothy. And he was so willing, and Timothy knew the risks, he was so willing to send Timothy. Timothy was willing to go. Because Paul faced persecution, there was a good chance he was going to. Because he wanted to encourage them. Because he wanted to know what was going on there. And he couldn't bear it because of his love. You need to understand that's the picture of what's going on here. And he's catching them up on this. Paul was genuinely affectionate towards the Thessalonians. But it's really important to understand what he was concerned about. He wasn't as concerned simply about, his, about their physical well-being. He wasn't trying to take them out of the persecution. 
He wasn't as concerned about their worldly success. What he was concerned about was their faith. See, Paul has an eternal perspective. What happens in this world is temporary and transient. Whatever we have in this world is temporary. And Paul understood that. And Paul says, I care about your faith. I want to know how you're doing amidst the persecution. I want to know how you're doing amidst the struggles that you're going through. That's what he cares about. When my kids were young in their teenage years, I said to them, I said, look, I don't really care where you end up in terms of college, in terms of career. Go wherever the Lord calls you to go. What I care about is your faith. That's what I care about. I care about where you end up eternally. That's what I care about. And that's what Paul is saying through Timothy to the Thessalonians. Trying to convey this kind of love. Trying to convey that this is most important. Where you spend eternity. And so he sends Timothy to them. And you know... This is nothing new. Remember, Jesus sent the apostles. When he couldn't go somewhere, when he wanted to expand his ministry, when he ascended into heaven, he sent the apostles. You know, when I can't be somewhere, sometimes I send Nathan. It is what it is, you know? And if Nathan can't go, or I can't get Nathan, I'll send Kathy. I'll send Martha. I'll send somebody, because I want you to know I care. And I want to hear what's going on. God loved us so much, he sent his son. Just like Paul was willing to send his son, Timothy. And Jesus would send the Holy Spirit. The one who would be our comforter to uphold us and support us. The counselor who draws alongside us to encourage us and direct us. That Jesus would send the Holy Spirit to be with us. So when Paul is sending Timothy, it's not like he's not bothering with them. It's because he loves them and he wants to encourage them and he wants to know what's going on. And so we enter this passage and these words that come across initially as Paul is sharing, he says, and I sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage you. There's two words he uses. And actually throughout this early section of chapter 3, he uses words like shaken. And, he, and like firm foundation. See, the word strengthen has to do with the foundation itself and what you're building on it. And a strong foundation is essential. You know, when Meredith and I moved to San Antonio back in 1987, we got a house, a 
there were a couple of cracks in the wall and a crack in the ceiling. And when we questioned that from the real estate person, they said, all the houses in San Antonio are like that. It's on a fault line. Oh, okay. When we went to sell the house, oh, you've got foundation damage that you have to get fixed. Isn't that interesting? So the cracks and the problem with the house was the foundation. So when we moved here, we looked for cracks. And we didn't see any. But let me tell you what we got going on right now. Nine years ago, we, have a, we had a pine tree. I couldn't even get my arms around it, about three feet outside my, my screened-in porch, right next to our deck in the back. Nine years ago, I was sitting out there working on a sermon, and it was struck by lightning. It's a wonderful experience. And the insurance people came out, and the tree person came out, and they said, you know, I think that tree's going to live because it jumped from the tree to the house when it struck. So I said, great, you know, because I love big trees. And I just love seeing that, you know, when you go outside, screened in porch. Well, slowly, that tree started leaning. And we had a bench as part of the deck. We had to take it off because it was pushing the porch. And it kept leaning, and then it started hitting the porch, and you could see the porch pull away from the stairs going down to the backyard. So we had to cut the deck away. And I was out doing yard work this spring, and I noticed there was a crack in the wall. And I thought, this isn't good. So I had Lynn Graves come over, and he says, yeah, that's probably the roots from the tree. You're going to have to have that tree taken down. So I had the tree taken down. So there wouldn't be foundation damage. See, because in reality, that tree could fall on the roof and, and the house could survive possibly. I don't know. But if that tree remains standing and causes foundation damage, now we have serious problems. And that's what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. You can deal with the persecution and the challenges that you're facing. But you need a firm foundation. And you need to be encouraged in that. And he uses this phrase, restore what is lost. If there's anything that's shaken, if there's any cracks in the wall, I want Timothy to shore that up for you. So you can deal with whatever challenges come your way. And then I want to build on it. I want to make sure the foundation is secure and the walls are secure. And I want you to build on that. So he uses this word strengthen. And then he throws in the word encourage. Which actually the word encourage here is more exhort. Exhort has two sides to it. There's that encouragement side. Like the comforting of the Holy Spirit. The coming alongside of. The boosting up. But then you've got the other side, which is the challenging side of exhort. Where you can do more, and you can do better, and you can do greater things. And we want you to grow. We want you to blossom even more. And that's the impression that you get as this chapter unfolds. And he slides in 
from this encouragement, strengthen and encourage, to faith and love. That's what he's trying to build on. That's what he's trying to establish. That's what he's trying to encourage. First, faith. Because faith is foundational. Trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trusting in his word. And building on that. That we can trust this God. We know he's faithful. He sent his son to die for us. But then it's not just about faith. It's about acting on that faith. It's about love. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, what's known as the love chapter, starts off, I mentioned this before, starts off with, if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, if I do these incredible things with my faith, if I have these incredible gifts but have not love, I'm just making noise. See, it's that faith and love that goes together. That we understand faith to be loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what faith is really all about. It's about that love relationship. And then loving your neighbor as yourself. These two go hand in glove. Faith and love. And you will see them coupled throughout this particular letter, and in particular, this particular section. Faith and love together. They're two essentials. And then he goes on to talk about praying and working. See, once he has this idea of faith and love together, then he kind of slides over to this whole notion of prayer. Because after all, faith is establishing and building up that relationship with the Lord. And how do we continue in that relationship with the Lord? We need to be in prayer. We need to be talking to the Lord. It's about communication if it's a relationship. And so prayer is essential. But so is work. Because love isn't just a static state. It's not just a feeling that we have. Love is a verb. It means action. It means sacrificial service. It means giving of ourselves. So as he begins to talk about faith and love, then he weaves in prayer and work. You know, it's interesting. I I remember years ago when I was first getting into the ministry. Someone said to me, pray as, as if everything depends on God and work as if everything depends on you. And it was helpful in some ways. I mean, you have to be really careful with, you know, kind of those catch-all phrases like that. Like, if I work as if everything depends on me, I can forget about God sometimes. Trust me, I've done it. And I have to be careful with that. And we do have to pray. But praying means that our hearts are moved. And typically when our hearts are moved, when we allow the Spirit to flow into us, it means we're going to respond somehow. That's love in action. Paul would say in this letter, I pray night and day. And then in another place in this letter, he says, I work night and day. What Paul is basically saying is, as I'm walking with the Lord, it's not just occasionally, it's not compartmentalized, it's not just, you know, I do my Sunday deal, I pray, and then the rest of the week I work, and I've got the rest of my life to deal with. 
And that's how many people think about faith. When really, if you understand, pray always, as Paul writes later on in Thessalonians, it means we're constantly aware of the Lord's presence in our life. Constantly conscious that He's walking with us by His Spirit. That He's there. But then we're also working, we're laboring. We're serving, we're loving. And loving implies service and action. And that's what Paul's saying. Understand this is the life of faith. You know, we've got too many Christians that don't pray enough. And we've got too many Christians that don't work enough. And we've got a lot of Christians that don't do either one very much. And if you really understand what Jesus lived, what Paul is writing about, it's a life. It is a life. It's not a compartment. It's not a few minutes. It is a life. So as you go through your life and live your life, God is never far from your thoughts. And he's in your heart and the Spirit is walking with you. And a willingness to serve is always there. And give of yourself. And reach out in love to others. And then he has this wonderful phrase. This great phrase he says, and abound in love. And he says it twice. Abound in love. Now, I want you to think about the word abound. It's a great word. I want you to think about the word abound just for a second and where it comes from. When you put A as a prefix on any word, what does it mean? Not. Right? Not. So abound means not bound. See the way that works? You, you with me? Good, okay. You're not bound. What are you not bound of, by? You're not bound by sin. See, we can become slaves to sin. And we become bound. You're not bound by unforgiveness because we can get so wrapped up in unforgiveness that we cease to love. We're not bound by bitterness. We can become so angry that we become bound from truly loving. We're not bound in that we're wrapped up in ourselves. I mean, just think of the idea, the picture of being wrapped up in yourself. You're bound because you're selfish. See, abounding in love means we are free to love. Understand, that's freedom. We are free to feel joy. I love this idea. Can you tell? We are meant to abound. That's the Christian life. When you really understand the Christian life, what a joy, what a blessing it is. See, that's what God intends. This is what Paul is writing about. And then he goes on, this word he uses, blameless. 
blameless. I mean, see, when we are abounding in love, when we are people who are praying constantly, when we're working in terms of giving love constantly, we are so abounding, we're not conscious of blame. Because we're covered with the righteousness of Christ. See, that's what salvation is all about. When we know and recognize we are sinners, we are to blame, we need to take responsibility for that, receive His forgiveness, now we abound in love. We abound in joy to the fruit of the Spirit. And we live a life in such a way that we are blameless. That's the goal. Who likes a convicted conscience? Love to walk around with conviction. Poor me, guilt, blame. You know, that kind of... I don't. I don't. And that's why Jesus came. So that we could be free from that. Jesus talks about coming to set us free. That's what he's talking about. So that we can be blameless. And, and blameless is just totally clear, cleansed. You know, and the funny thing is, we love to blame people, don't we? We love to blame anything and everything. The weather, the drivers, my family, my spouse, whatever. We can blame whatever, whoever around us. Makes us feel better, as if we're off the hook. You know, I'm convinced that people blame Jesus. The blameless one. Because he was misleading the people. The only blameless one gets blamed. Why? Because he brought conviction into people's lives. See, when the Holy Spirit brings conviction to your life, your immediately resp immediate response should be, confess so that you can experience that blamelessness again. So that you can abound in love again. That's what he's after. That's what he wants for you. And people would blame Paul. That's why Paul had to flee Thessalonica. They said he was causing problems. When in fact what was happening were people were responding in faith and the other people that weren't didn't like it. They didn't believe. And that's why Jesus said in the gospel, don't be surprised when you're persecuted. Because that's what happens. You know, it's an interesting slide that Paul does next. And we're not there yet, but I'm going to allude to it. He then moves from, and you need to get this in mind, strengthening and encouraging them to try to build up, build them up, and build on what they have about prayer and work, that faith and love going hand in hand. And then how we move to abounding in love in our lives, walking with the Lord. And he slides into this blamelessness, and then the next step is talking about the parousia. And if you don't know what that is, it's not an Italian dish. The parousia, the parousia, another word for it is advent. And another word for that is second coming of Christ. That Jesus is going to come again. 
And he wants you blameless, not only as you walk and you abound in love, he wants you blameless on that day. That's what he's saying to the Thessalonians. I want you blameless on that day. That when you really understand receiving the gospel and you're covered with the righteousness of Christ and you live in that, filled with the Spirit, you are blameless. And I want you there on that day. Because there's a judgment coming. And we want to dodge that. We want to dodge that whole idea. Sometimes we convince ourselves everybody's okay and it doesn't matter. And there is going to be a judgment. Listen to the words of Jesus from Matthew's Gospel reading. Jesus talks about judgment. And if he is honest and true and his words are trustworthy, we have to believe it. Now, of course, the apostles wanted to know how and when. And so they asked him in Matthew 24 and 25. Even his two intimates, Peter and John, wanted to know how and when in John 21. And Jesus basically says to all of them, always be ready. In other words, always live in that state of blamelessness. Always live in that state of abounding in love, but bring that to others. Don't just hold it to yourself because there's an eternal picture. There's an eternal perspective. And if you love people, you want them there. That's what he's saying. You know, right now it's really popular. This movie that's been out, Heaven is Real. You know what I'm talking about? So is hell. So is hell. And we want to forget that part. But that's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about his coming again. There's a judgment. And I don't know about you, but I want everyone I know and love there. With me. With the Lord. And I want them to know the gospel. And that's why Paul is writing to them saying, I can't stand being apart from you because I love you and I want you to stay connected to the Lord. I want you to stay strong and encouraged. I want you to be a people who pray and who work for the sake of the kingdom, who are willing to do faith through love in action to serve those around you sacrificially. And I want you get, to get the word out. Because I love you, I want you to be there. Jesus had an eternal perspective. That's why he went to the cross. And he went there for us, and much like Paul would say, you are my joy and my crown. That's why Paul went to Thessalonica and he suffered. That's why Jesus went to the cross for us. We are his joy and crown. And those around me, my family, my friends, are my joy and my crown, and I want them there. My prayer for you is that you are there. And that you have an eternal perspective, and you abound in love to those around you. So that they would know this Jesus. And they would know his salvation. And they would know his love.
Worldly success is fleeting. I care about eternity. Do you? Please bow with me in prayer. You know, on Sunday mornings, we always pray the Lord's Prayer. And some, some of you even pray it during the week. And the Lord's Prayer has a line in it, Thy will be done. And I heard judgment described at one point as one of two people are going to say, Thy will be done when you come to the throne for judgment. If you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you say to him, thy will be done. And you're welcomed into the kingdom. And if you have lived apart from God and you've had no desire to grow in the knowledge and love of him and share his love with other people, then when you get to heaven, he will say to you, thy will be done. You wanted to live your life without me. You'll continue in that. And I know my prayer for those around me and those I love is I want them to pray thy will be done and know what his will is. Which is for the Lord to have reached them through the cross for their salvation and eternal life. For them to know his love and his grace. Lord God, I thank you for this challenging word for our lives. Meant to strengthen. Meant to encourage. And also meant to challenge. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of prayer. For the gift of being able to love and serve others. I thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can abound in love, not restricted in any way. And be blameless in you. Prepared to meet you face to face. Lord, I pray that we would live this life and that we would share this gospel and that we would have your eternal perspective on the lives of those that we love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.